Hi, you're tuned into 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Adam Yuliana from the Department of Chemical Engineering. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So great to have you here. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. You're the first person from the College of Chemistry that I've had on the show, so we'll get to talk some chemistry. Um, Pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. You are in the news, actually, because you just got a paper out about a new technique for desalination, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, why don't we just get started by like talking a little bit about this new publication you have out? Before I get into the details, I'll just say that this was a collaboration and all of the co-authors that are listed should be acknowledged. So Nak Bui, who is now a professor at University of Oklahoma, actually, and same with Jovan Kamchev, who's on University of Michigan now, he's a professor. Uh, Mercedes Taylor, who's a University of uh, Maryland professor now. And then a group at LBL, Jeffrey Urban's group, and then my PI, Jeff Long. So actually, I'm the only one here right now. The other ones have gone out into academia, which is a unique experience. But yeah, the, the work is on desalination and capturing selectively uh, specific ions in water or solutes. So this is both to do both at the same time. Like what, what ions, what solutes are we talking about? So what we looked at are neutral and cationic solutes, and these are really contaminants, so waterborne contaminants. Neutral, no charge, and cationic are positive. positive. Charged. Okay. Right. Yeah, and so we looked at some problematic contaminants that are in water. We looked at four, more, more or less as a proof of concept. So one of the biggest ones that we looked at is mercury, which I'm sure most people know is quite toxic. You don't want to be playing around with that. Yeah, actually, it was a little scary for me to work with at first. Uh, yeah, luckily it paid off. <laughs> what did you have to do with it? So I never had to work with liquid mercury, which is like in a thermometer, or they don't allow them anymore. But these are these are uh, solvated mercury ions, so it's mercury in a like a water solution. And so everything that's in the paper, I had to handle, you know, with like gloves. Obviously, uh, it's still toxic, even in low concentrations. Yeah. Nothing too bad, but definitely enough to be a bit spooky. Was that like the first time you had worked with something like, you know, that you knew was really toxic in your uh, research career? I'd say before I came here, I worked with some things that were a little toxic, but I think now that I'm mostly in a chemistry group, yeah, definitely have worked with a bunch of toxic chemicals, mercury being one of them. I think it's been a unique experience in that regard. Yeah. Okay. So you were working on this technique to get uh, mostly or to get our neutral solutes and cations out of water. And you're specifically focused on mercury. How does it work? Yeah. So it combines a couple different types of technology all in one without needing additional units. So usually in like a water purification plant, you'll have a lot of contaminants in water. So for example, you'll have high salinity levels. But also these water sources often contain these trace contaminants. And these are things that are very toxic. So something like mercury or other ions that we looked at were copper and also iron. So even at their lower concentrations, they are toxic. Usually in water purification plants, you have to separate one of those types of contaminants at a time. 
And we created a way to do it all in one step. And that's what's pretty new. Yeah, the technology is based off of something called electrodialysis. So electrodialysis is actually in industry right now. Like it's, it is used, and this is a desalination uh, approach. I'll start as a comparison with reverse osmosis because I think more of us are at least aware of that. Or like a life straw, if you've ever dealt with that, or any type of filter. So like in reverse osmosis, you do have a membrane. What that is is like a really thin film. So I'm talking on the order of like smaller than 100 microns or like smaller than 0.1 uh, millimeters. And so you'll have this film that's really dense. There aren't pores in them actually. And you basically apply a huge pressure to basically force water molecules through this film. Only the water molecules can pass through the film, but all of the other charged species, so like those contaminants or salts, they don't pass through. And basically then you get pure water on the other side of the membrane because only the water can pass. Sorry, uh, and why is it called reverse osmosis? Oh yeah, because um, it's, so there's something called osmosis or like osmotic pressure. So like if you have, um, if you've ever seen like a dialysis unit or, or like a membrane in our bodies, so sometimes you'll have like this, this semi-permeable barrier. Uh, this is something we might've learned in like, I don't know, high school biology. Basically, if there's a concentration gradient along them, so basically if there's like a solute, some type of component in the water that's higher in concentration on one side, it'll pass through naturally through that filter and go on the other side. Similar to like, if you're ever dissolving, say sugar in water, the sugar will disperse out rather than be concentrated in one specific section. In reverse osmosis, you're doing the exact opposite. Uh, in You're like basically concentrating the feed even more with salts by removing water from it. So it's the reverse of natural osmosis. So then for this electrodialysis approach, which is another desalination approach, it's kind of the opposite idea. This time you don't push water through, you push ions through the membrane. So this time you apply an electric field and that causes only, only charged molecules in water. So like a salt, which is dissociated. Uh, so a salt will uh, have ions, which only the charged species will basically be affected by the electrodes. Something like water is neutral, like it's just H2O, there's no charge on it. So that won't move at all. But the ions will move toward the electrodes and basically be moved away from the water, which is left behind. That's what you end up drinking after electrodialysis. Okay, cool. So you basically just are just like calling anything with a charge out of the water. Right. But you said you're also getting out neutral. Yeah. Uh, items, yeah. So how does So, that yeah, yeah. So it's funny how you were asking about osmosis because the removal of the neutral species is actually based on that exact principle. Basically, you can't apply an electric field just like you were saying, uh, but there is a concentration gradient still. So like if you have, so what we're doing is similar to something called forward osmosis. I don't know if people know about that, but it's this one technique where you can have you can basically purify water like in, in a camping environment by having like a sugary solution on one side and you basically have, you know, pull water from like a river and then have this like little film where only the water will pass through. That's based off of osmosis, which is how we're removing neutral species. So what it is is a concentration gradient in your feed water. So like 
say seawater, you basically expose that to a membrane, which then the, the neutral species in the feed will migrate across, or sorry, will um, travel across the membrane from a concentration gradient. Just like how I said that things will wanna move from a high to a low concentration, just like if you're dissolving sugar. Right. Here now, rather than you know having a bucket of sh sugar water, you have a film in the middle where only, uh, where basically the neutral species transports across of that film. So you've got like this filter, I guess, that you've set mm -hmm. up that's applying both the electrical charge and it's got this film. And so you're just like having both of these happening simultaneously, but they're separate mm -hmm. processes, essentially. Right. And really what is the new advance is that the membranes we're using actually have selectivity for only the toxic contaminant. So actually in, in like any of the different processes that I just mentioned, like reverse osmosis, electrodialysis, osmosis, anything right now in say industry, they don't have selectivity toward say only your toxic ions or toxic contaminants. So what we did was we spread out these selective particles throughout the membrane. So we basically have this film that's like hundred microns inside of that film are all of these little beads that are on the order of like 200 nanometers. So that's like uh, over a thousand times smaller than a millimeter. So we have all of these little beads that are very selective for those specific toxic contaminants. So now where I mentioned that all of the ions are, are pulled apart of the water in electrodiasis, usually in regular electrodiasis, all of the ions will pass through the membrane and basically leave behind pure water. But then like the so-called brine stream, that's basically the soup of all the ions that were rejected or removed from water, just has the toxic contaminant. If you don't have any ion to ion selectivity, all of that huge volume is, say that there's mercury in the water and you reject it into the brine, all of that water or the brine stream is still considered mercury containing waste. And then you still have this like huge amount that like, what do you do with it? What we have is that when all of the ions travel across the membrane, the toxic ones are selectively stuck. They basically stick to the membrane because of those beads. They stick to the beads inside of the membrane. And then you no longer have those toxin contaminants on the other side of the membrane. And then you can desorb it and have like a low, a low volume uh, waste stream that will be easier to work with. Yeah. And so the having the soup, people don't really have a good plan for disposal of the, of the toxic waste. Right. Right. Not really. In general, like anywhere that has desalinated water will do this quote unquote, like filtering process where all ions are removed. And um, usually what's done is that the that in the case of like reverse osmosis is literally just sent back to the ocean and you'll like slowly concentrate the ocean as an example with all of the salts in a place that has say somewhere like Flint, Michigan, if that was handled responsibly, then what they would have done there is have a ton of different say adsorption columns where they remove the, the toxin in addition to say doing desalination. And if they do, it requires like a ton of new steps, like an individual column for each. And then obviously that's a lot more expensive, a lot larger footprint. And so, and then you were talking a bit about um, 
desorbing things from um, filters. And that's kind of what would happen at the end of the uh, filtering process that you've laid out with this electrodialysis. Right. Are the materials that we get uh, from the filtering process, are they, so once we've got them and now um, we have this toxic waste, is it, do, are they like just toxic waste? Like, can we, would we be able to use them, repurpose them for anything? Um, yeah, that's, that's a great point. So actually the idea is that because you're isolating only one, say molecule, like one type of molecule, like, like mercury, if you're only isolating mercury from all the other, the soup that we were talking about, then potentially once you desorb it, you only desorb, you basically have a solution of only mercury in say water. And then you could just isolate, that's all isolated. And then you can reuse the mercury. I mean, for something like mercury, I don't know if you would reuse it, but there are other compounds that are in water. Even like seawater has actually a lot of gold, a lot of uranium, things that can be reused. And that is also the idea of this process. Yeah, for sure. Is that, um, is that something that people are like actually looking into as a way to actually get a bunch of gold, a bunch of uranium? Yeah, actually it's been, uh, I don't really like using this word because I think a lot of people use it for fake purposes, but it's really honestly like a holy grail of a lot of these like resource recovery or like extraction people. Uh, because actually uranium, I think there's like 1000 times more uranium actually in seawater than there is in any geological reserve. And obviously we need uranium to power, say like power plants. Right. And we only rely on geog like uh, geological reserves. So tapping into that would be really useful. Same with gold, obviously. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So this is this cool new technique. Uh, what does it look like? What do you, what is the thing that you made? Is it like, a, yeah. Yeah. What does it look like? Yeah. That's a good question. So the film itself that I mentioned that has the beads inside of them, it's uh, it's really looks kind of like a saran wrap. That's a little colored or, or just like a plastic sheet. And actually it feels like that too. So yeah, it's really thin. Like, uh, like I said, 0.1 millimeters around there. So really small, you, you can hardly even see the thickness and it's, it's like a sheet. So it's expanded out, um, kind of like a piece of paper. The actual electro ion capture electrodialysis unit, that's what we call it, is basically these glass cells. So it, it's, it's like two different compartments uh, that look almost like a, like a little cup that's attached together where the membrane is between two cups that are kind of attached together. So this is the, what you were working on in the lab. It was... Mm -hmm relatively small? Yeah, this one was definitely smaller. So I developed a few, or actually in the College of Chemistry, we have a glass blower, someone who makes custom glass. Oh, nice. And both of us made it together, really him mostly, but I, I helped him with it. Yeah, and we made these that are like uh, 45 milliliters on, on each side. Like each of those cups that I mentioned is like 45 milliliters, so pretty small. But uh, I guess the theory, uh, so you've like worked on showing this theory, this works, um, but, you know, moving forward, if you were to put it into use, you could really make something a lot bigger that would actually, uh, you know, help supply a mm -hmm. 
district, a municipality, whatever, with water? Absolutely. And actually, the idea was that all of our design was really trying to carefully design the membrane films such that like the ion selectivity that I mentioned goes into the film itself, not the whole process. So actually these films could be implemented directly into existing electrodialysis units. And really the, the big development that's needed is just to scale up the membranes, not, not like anything else too much. Is like it being scaled up, you know, something that will happen? Yeah, honestly, I think that it could happen and without all that much difficulty. The beads that I mentioned that are really selective, those ones are really, really good materials, but that also means that they're really not easy or inexpensive to make. So if there were ways to scale up that, then there definitely would be ways to scale up the membrane. And you can also replace these beads with lower performance ones, such as ones that actually you could buy off of like Alibaba or probably even like Amazon. So theoretically, they could probably be scaled up pretty quickly. I've just never done it and no one in our group has yet. Is that something you think about with the research that you do, um, being able to make things that you can scale up? Yeah, definitely. I think that that would definitely be a strong desire moving forward, especially to you know actually help people with this, hopefully. So we've mostly been talking about this um, paper. Is that uh, most of what your doctoral research has been about? Yeah, so it's been a huge chunk. The paper itself was honestly a ton of work, (laughs) which I'm glad to put behind me um, to an extent. So I'm a fourth year PhD student. And uh, that was, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't all of my PhD work, but it was definitely a big chunk. I've also developed different types of beads that I mentioned without putting them in membranes and also different types of membrane applications that are related to this whole technology. But this is, yeah, definitely the major part of my PhD work. The beads, um, so you're saying they're selective for particular uh, particles or molecules. What do you do to make a bead that's selective for something? Yeah, yeah. It requires a lot of synthetic chemistry. What these beads look like is actually that we really tune the pore size. So these are porous. They have little pore pockets. And that's actually where the, the ions, like mercury, where that actually travels to and ends up getting captured. So it's kind of like a net-like material, but on the really small scale. So actually one of these pores, like one of these pockets where the ion binding happens is only like one nanometer in diameter. So it's really small. So it's not that much bigger actually than an atom itself. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe like less than an order of magnitude. And so what we do is we create this like net-like backbone, which is basically just a polymer that we synthesize. And onto that, we basically append on these binding groups. So they're like these little claws that are really selective. So based off of the chemicals that make up the claw, they're very selective toward one type of species. So like there are certain ones that are really selective for only mercury and not anything else. Then there are also some that are selective for only like boron but nothing else. And so it's really about that. And that actually allows us to tune the selectivity based off of the claw you put on. Is it like a lot of upfront, like theoretical work, like this is what it would have to look like and then synthesizing it is kind of like, then it's just like the process and making sure, or is it like a lot of like 
making it and like finding out it doesn't work and then going back and forth mm. like, yeah like what's the is it all the front end the back end where's the re- where's the like all the work yeah it's a little bit of a combination of both really really it's more like uh say that usually how i approach this research is i have a certain target in mind so like something like gold or something like mercury and then i look up on the literature like what other people smarter than me have published you know stuff that show that it's really selective for this. And then I see what's possible, what could possibly like fit in one of these nets and also actually chemically be appended onto it. And then that part of actually trying it and testing its properties to see if it is selective, definitely some trial and error with it. And a lot of times just banning the head against the wall. (laughs) When I mentioned uh, that some initial questions that I had to you in an email, um, you, told me that you were a chemical engineer instead of a chemist. And I was really interested um, why you uh, felt the need to make that clarification. I guess it, like, it's clear from what you've been telling me about your research that it really does sound like you're doing engineering stuff, right? Like applying mm-hmm. chemical knowledge to make something. But yeah, why is that? Uh, why was that important to know? Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, it's kind of funny within the like college of chemistry world, which actually only consists of the department of chemical engineering and the department of chemistry and like any chemical engineer and chemist, there's a huge distinction that everyone always makes sure to point out because it really does base, it really does dictate how we think about things, but it's funny. It honestly doesn't matter at all. And actually when I like go home to visit and no one that I like, none of my friends at home or my family at home has any idea what a chemist or a chemical engineer does. Like they usually, I mean, like my brother said that I was an electrical engineer recently and like, see, it doesn't matter. The distinction doesn't matter at all in reality, (laughs) but yeah, definitely the way that you think about things and the background is a bit different actually in chemical engineering versus chemistry. So like, what are, what are those differences? Yeah, I would say that in general, obviously it depends on the person. In general, actually chemical engineering, the like classes that you take and everything you learn, it's actually way more math and physics than chemistry. Uh, And actually a lot of people don't realize that. Um, And the way that chemical engineers think is usually much more applied, kind of like what you just said about the paper. It's really like, how can we apply this chemistry into something? Whereas a lot of chemists, they'll think really on the fundamental level and they'll wonder like, why does that work? Uh, and let's figure out why a little bit more in depth. Right, I got you. So it's kind of like how people might think about physics versus engineering, but mm-hmm. specifically in the context of chemistry. Right. Why did you gravitate towards chemical engineering over chemistry? Or is that like mm-hmm. just kind of like, it happened or was there a specific choice you made? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, really where my real interests lie are kind of right in the middle. I, I always like to say that chemistry is more interesting to me. Like I, I'm just really fascinated by how chemistry works and all of that, but I'm much more motivated on the application side. So like if, if all of my time, if I need to spend all of my time on something really what motivates me is how can I actually help people with what I'm doing and I think that in my opinion chemical engineering fits that bill a little better I see or at least more directly I should say right right if you were a chemist maybe you would be doing something that would really 
inform some of the things that as a chemical engineer, you're actually like putting out there. Right. And like both are equally as important to the right. world, but yeah, one, you get to see the effects more or more quickly and more obviously. When you say you like how chemistry works, like, what does that mean to you? Like, what is, yeah. what is how chemistry works? What is chemistry? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a great question. To me, chemistry is really about how the world works on a scale that's smaller than we, we can see. That's what really fascinates me. Things that you can't see that aren't tangible to the eye and why they actually work is really interesting to me. So like, for example, why is the sky blue is something that I thought of all the time as a kid and stuff like that. Like why, why do colors exist? Why is any of this, like why uh, just all of that type of stuff, stuff that you can't see that isn't really obvious. That to me is more of the chemistry. So like on the molecular level, so to speak, what actually dictates all of these properties for me, that's what really is interesting. So that's like, yeah, that's a really all-encompassing thing. Yeah. Guess, yeah. Do you run into people, I don't know, chemistry, I guess when we think about it in like high school, right? It's mm -hmm. like solutions of things. Yeah. Uh, is that kind of what you encounter when you tell people you do chemistry? It's like much more narrow than you understand chemistry to be? Yeah. Usually if I ever tell like someone not at Berkeley what chemistry is, say like I go and talk to my family, Usually the questions that come up are either like, oh, do you work with anything that could kill you? Or have you blown anything up or started a fire? And honestly, yeah, almost. <laughs> yeah. But um, <laughs> honestly, a lot of it is a lot of solutions. It's not like as much mad scientist as I think the media or at least cartoons like to depict uh, where you, you, know, you just mix a bunch of random stuff together and hope for the best. But there is definitely a lot of that mix in and, and pretty color looking solutions that definitely is in the day to day. So you kind of talked about, uh, you know, you might be interested in um, seeing where some of the things you've been working on in your PhD might go eventually. Um, other than that, like what, uh, what do you see envisioned for yourself um, after grad school? Uh, do you see yourself staying in academic research or... Mm -hmm. um, maybe doing industrial research or something like that? This is something that I have really been thinking about, actually. So going into grad school, I thought I was dead set on doing academia after grad school. And I would say that's still where I'm leaning toward. Um, but there are definitely other things that are really piquing my interests. For example, like doing a startup, actually based off of the paper that we were just talking about in related materials. Uh, that definitely is not something that I've you know, put behind me, like maybe, maybe I'll pursue that. I'm actually trying to figure that out this summer. Cool. So that's like something that's really on the table, like a startup built around this uh, technology. Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot of things that really interest me about it. And yeah, kind of like I said, I'm really motivated by trying to get stuff out that can actually help people. And um, yeah, being able to do that with something like this, I think would be really a great thing to try. Yeah. Is it um, fairly common that um, people moving through a chemistry or maybe more specifically a chemical engineering um, graduate program kind of, you know, is there like a strong startup culture coming out of it? I would say it's not uncommon, but it's not necessarily common in each co, maybe, maybe like 
fewer than 5% of students will end up doing a startup based off of their university research, maybe even closer to one or two. But it's never that surprising when people do, because there definitely are a number of people that have done it. Even in our lab itself, there have been a couple. Well, unfortunately, it looks like we are running out of time on the interview. Do you have anything you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, I think a lot of the motivation for this work is there's really two things. One is that for water, we really rely heavily on surface fresh water. So this is something like lakes and stuff like that. Actually, I think like 65% of USA's water consumption is from these freshwater sources. But with climate change and stuff like that and booming populations, actually these resources are dwindling a lot. And even, even now, only less than 0.01% of all of the water in the world is surface freshwater, even though we rely on it so much. So I think we'll be expecting to see much more about desalination and say seawater to kind of fuel us moving forward. And I would say another thing just of motivation is just with trying to selectively remove specific contaminants from water in an efficient way, that's really motivated by just like a lot of the injustices that are linked to some of these places that have high contamination sources and where people just don't have an option to, you know, but to drink those contaminants, such as like a Flint, Michigan, or even other places around the world. For example, in Bangladesh, there's like 45,000 people or so that die each year from the arsenic that's in their groundwater, uh, which is what they use for drinking water. And that's a huge problem. And getting more people that can try to figure out how to fix these problems would be really great. Today, I've been speaking with Adam Yuliana from the Department of Chemical Engineering. We've been talking about his work on new desalination techniques. Thanks so much for being on the show, Adam. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.